0: This podcast is a 2020 Pod Roger production. The Trainer's Edge is supported by GrowSites. Affordable, beautiful, professional websites, customized to your specific needs. To see how you can grill your project visit grow sites. Dot E-S. Welcome to the Trainer's Edge. Episode 1, The Trainer's Brain. I'm Graham Giblin. I've been a trainer for more than 12 years. I've got two diplomas in training, a TAE Cert for and a coaching qualification. And also, whoopity-doo. There's a lot we don't get told in our courses about real-life training, what it's actually like, because there's only one way to find out about real-life training, and that's in real life. As in so many other professions, our qualification is a license to learn how to be a professional. This podcast is about some of the things that have worked for me in practice, things that aren't obvious, but that can make a difference, and wisdom I've learnt from others. When I started thinking about becoming a trainer, I thought it was maybe something I could do. It turned out it was, and that it was something I wasn't bad at and then I discovered it was something I loved. Not because it boosted my ego, not because it paid well, because it didn't, but because of how it transformed my students. I realised that at least part of the reason for their transformation might be because I was in the room. I'm not trying to teach you to suck eggs, You're already a qualified effective trainer. Maybe you've been training for a lot longer than me. You've got your own insights and tricks and techniques. What I think is that if I love learning through other people's insights and if I'm open to ideas that can make me more effective, then maybe there are some ideas here that you'll find useful. So if you have any ideas and techniques that you think can be valuable to other trainers, please share them in comments on the episode page. This podcast is a result of reflection on my own experience, the great ideas that others have shared with me, ideas I've discovered from outside the world of training, and the surprises I've stumbled on as I experimented. I haven't got anything to tell you about online training and assessment. One, I don't know enough about it, and two, I prefer to be in a room full of people, as a trainer and as a student, just my personal preference. I'll be talking about the training room, but you could be a trainer in a factory or on a golf course, on a farm or an aeroplane. I'll just use training room for simplicity. So let's start with a really important tool the trainer uses, their brain, the trainer's mindset. It's a tool you need to keep sharpened. That's why this podcast is called The Trainer's Edge. The other day I was reading about a company that helps people to improve their presentations. It had advice about voice presentation, body language, using the stage, how to be charismatic and overcoming stage fright, amongst other things, and how to just be yourself. So good on them for trying to help out, but I think they've got the wrong end of the stick. What they're saying is that it's all about you. For a start, if you're consciously trying to be yourself, it's impossible to be yourself. You can't do that if you're always looking inside yourself and not looking out there where the audience is. Thinking it's about you is the quickest way to crash and burn. The good news is, as a trainer, it's not about you, it's about the audience. It's about the students. And all you need to do is focus completely on the students. Look at any successful stand-up comedian at work. They're all about their connection with the audience. They work the audience to make it laugh, and they couldn't possibly do that if they weren't 100% connecting with them. Without that focus, they'd be booed off the stage. So you could think of yourself as a stand-up trainer. When I walk into a room on day one, the first thing I'll probably do is stand still and look at all the students and just soak them up. You've got their attention, and they want to know what's going on. You can think of it as sizing up the group. It only takes a few seconds, really, otherwise it'd seem bizarre, right? But it makes such a big difference. Within seconds, I'll have an involuntary smile on my face. I've seen a comedian do this, and before long the audience was almost rioting with laughter, and he hadn't said a word. So yes, if you do this, you'll probably find people giggling, and that's not a bad start. So you look at, who are these people? Where do they come from? Why are they here? What do they want? What do they expect? Who's the most likely troublemaker? Well, we haven't got the faintest idea, so it's going to be fun to find out. You walk into the room with a commitment to them, their outcomes, their enjoyment, to delivering what they need as well as you can. Whether they've been forced into your room or have chosen to be in your room, either way, they expect you to deliver an interesting product. Or at least they hope you will. Sensing what's going on in the room means all your attention is out there in the room. Is training work or a job? I make a big distinction between the work and the job. It's not the one in the dictionary, but I find it's useful and a really effective perspective to bring to the training. What's a job? A job is the physical activities you do. Type on a laptop, draw on a whiteboard, tick off attendance. Other jobs might be to drive a bus, steer it, make it go faster and slower, stop at bus stops. Or it might be to serve drinks on an aeroplane, or take people's money, or brew coffee, or answer the phone. When you've done those activities, at the end of the week, you get paid money. Jobs are what we do to make money so we can pay the rent or the mortgage on the place where we sleep before returning to the place where we do our job so we can afford transport to get to the job and back home again over and over and over and over again so that for a few weeks of the year we can relax and recover from the job we do and so that when we get old, We can spend all that lovely superannuation we've saved up to go on the trip we're too old and creaky to really enjoy. A job is often something we have to do, rather than something we want to do. For some people, the definition of the job is whatever makes them feel more and more depressed the closer they get to the office. That's a job. But the work you do is different. For some people, it's whatever makes them feel more and more excited the closer they get to the office. Work is often something we want to do, or even something we need to do. And work is often something we would do even if we weren't being paid for it. Our work is causing positive personal and social outcomes, making a difference in people's lives. Work is how what we do affects and improves the lives of other people. So, for example, the job of a dentist is to fix teeth. That takes a lot of skill and chemicals and machinery. They stick needles into your gums, drill holes and fill them, put whitening paste and braces and caps on your teeth. But the dentist's work is giving people their smiles back, transforming lives, giving them confidence, when before there was embarrassment in some cases a dentist's work, makes it possible for a patient to join back into society. For us as trainers, the job is to stand up or sit down and say stuff, to mark attendance and fill out the paperwork and help people learn how to do things. The payoff is the pay packet. But our work is to transform lives by creating possibilities, boosting confidence, and helping to create new opportunities for our students. Our work takes real skills and effort, commitment to our students, and caring about people. And the payoff really can't be measured. What I'm saying is, if we only do our job, we're not doing the work. So what do we bring to the training room? Well, we bring whatever we've got, including our knowledge, technical skills, work experience, and social skills. What I think we should leave outside the door are two things we all have, our prejudices and our egos. Four things we have that I think are really important are first, the lessons we've learned from life experience. Second, the skills we've developed in connecting with people. Third, our passion for training and making a difference. And fourth, curiosity about life and people in general. Some of our life experiences might not be useful in training, but they give our sense of empathy a certain depth. Like most people, I've fallen in love and I've been broken-hearted numerous times. That gives you a certain depth of emotion and compassion. I've been hired and I've been fired. That's a roller coaster of elation and fury and despair and rejection and determination that can teach you uncertainty and survival and give you a breadth of emotion and compassion. You've probably travelled extensively and experienced people and cultures that are quite different from your own. That brings an awareness and appreciation of the diversity of the human experiment, as well as the understanding that all people are human beings, dealing with the same human challenges with astonishing and marvellous varieties of creativity. I'm not saying you should share your personal life in the room, but use it to connect with your students. One thing life experience does make possible is relating to all sorts of different people at all sorts of levels, and feeling related helps us to connect with them, and helps them to connect with us. While I was preparing this episode, I came across a TED Radio Hour podcast on creativity, One of their guests was the most popular of all TED lecturers, Sir Ken Robinson. The video of his first talk has been viewed nearly 64 million times. Sir Ken was being interviewed about education and here's the bit that really shot home for me. All the great teachers I've ever met and worked with are people who can inspire interest and passion and curiosity. And light up people's imaginations with the interest they themselves have for a particular discipline or field of work. I mean if you think that teaching is always and only a process of giving people direct instructions and giving them information they have to memorize, teaching is much more than that. It's about enabling, it's about facilitating, it's about mentoring, it's about creating curiosity. We're all experts on teaching because we've all been to school and we've all had unbearably boring teachers and nasty teachers. And we've all got at least one teacher who inspired us and excited us and opened the world for us. We all know the difference between the ones we want to be like and the ones we don't. Which brings us to the student mindset. First, There are as many student mindsets in the room as there are students in the room. It's kind of essential that you get as much sense of the room as you can. You can get a reasonably good feel just by spending a little time scanning the room. There's a concept called already always listening. It's something we're all expert at, usually without being aware of it. It's that automatic opinion we have of someone else we're so clever at this. We check how they're dressed, their hair, their age, their gender, their shape, their colour, their accent, and instantly we already know exactly what sort of person they are, how they're likely to behave, what they probably think, how well they're likely to do, how smart they are. How smart are we? Well, we reckon we're well above average at this in the same way that the vast majority of all drivers think that their driving skills are well above average. So more than half of them are completely wrong. This is known as illusory superiority. We naturally overestimate our abilities. We already think we know about people. We think we're absolute masters of reading people. We always know, except we don't. We just don't know anything about them. What we do is we bring our own story, our own prejudices, our own stereotypes, and we slap them onto complete strangers like post-it notes. It's like answering a question no one was asking. We still think we know the right answer. But what that means How it can influence the quality of our training is that while we think we know these people, we can't see the actual people who are sitting in front of us in our training room. All we can see is ourselves projected out onto them. We like it that way because that makes it easy for us, and we don't want to disturb the precious views we've spent so much time and effort building up. And we can do that, of course we can. It's really economical, saves a lot of energy and effort, and it makes us feel less vulnerable. If we grind through the script and read the PowerPoint slides, and if we just trudge through the units of competency, throwing them at our pretend students we made up, we'll probably achieve a certain amount of student success, naturally. But it's also a bit lonely being in the room talking basically to yourself. And it's boring not learning anything from the students. I'm not saying that our personal ideas and judgments are all wrong or aren't valuable sometimes, but looking through our already always filter, we can fail to experience the reality of the people who are relying on us to help them. In contrast, we can take our existing views and stereotypes and judgments, the one we're aware of, and put them aside It might make us feel a bit vulnerable. That's okay. Nothing bad is actually going to happen. Look at the aliens assembled in the room. They're vulnerable too. Listen to them. Learn about the real them and we'll discover new fascinating and surprising humans. That experience is the trainer's magic juice. When I walk into the room for the first time, I always wonder what all these strangers are going to teach me. It's exciting. They never disappoint me, and I'm always grateful. If I walked into the room thinking I knew everything and had nothing to learn, I'd only be able to go through the motions, and that would be incredibly boring. And I'd have to stop being a trainer. No money is worth wasting that much time. Back to the student mindset. We want the students engaged, receptive, interested and anticipating. We want them in learning mode. I'm sure you know lots of ways to do that and if you feel generous enough to share your favourites, feel free to do that in comments on the episode page. Here's one of mine. Two of the most essential gifts we can give to other people in general are validation and acknowledgement. Unless we're psychopaths, we all like the dopamine hit of receiving validation and acknowledgement, but many of us are pretty poorly trained at dishing it out to others. Validation and acknowledgement are essential tools to help getting students engaged, receptive, interested and anticipating. Validation is about recognition, approval and acceptance. It's as easy as using their name. In fact, use the students' names as often as you can. Involve every student specifically by name in activities. Acknowledgement can be as simple as saying, thank you, or as time consuming as writing a short complimentary note in their assessment. It's not hard. Questions and the student mindset. How we ask questions and listen to the answers is crucial. I'm sure you know about active listening. It's a great skill, but it's not a natural one. And most of us, even if we know how, forget to do it. There are two main types of questions, open and closed, as if you didn't know. A closed question is basically one where the answer is yes or no, or a one-word answer. Open questions are almost all the rest. How are you feeling today? What was your breakfast like? Why do you say that? Tell me about your plans for the future. Both open and closed questions have their place, but open questions are more powerful when it comes to engaging the student, when they give you an insight into who they are. It's also important to listen to the answers properly. One of the ways of acknowledging someone is to ask a question based on their previous answer. It means that you've heard them and listened to them and are interested in knowing more about them that their input is valuable. You can also demonstrate that you've listened by summarizing what they've said. So what you're saying is blah blah whatever. This is a great technique because it allows the student to hear back to themselves what they've said, and it might be the first time they've heard it outside their own brain. That insight can deepen their understanding and can sometimes help them to reorganize their thinking. Andragogy. What we do is adult education. Usually, students aren't forced to attend our training. They attend because they choose to, and they choose to because they want to learn. Adults have agency, the capacity to act independently and to make their own free choices, so we treat them as adults. I've worked with people who've escaped unimaginable horrors in war zones and yet they come to my training room and they smile. They're generous and kind. They're grateful for the opportunity to learn and create a new life. I'm not about to talk down to someone who can teach me more than I hope I ever need. And finally, back to the trainer's mind and reinforcing what I think is at the heart of good training. The cleverest thing we trainers can do is to get out of our own way by focusing on the students and what they want and need, and by listening to them, validating them, and acknowledging them. The next episode of The Trainer's Edge is Second Things First. It's about the importance of the first moments of the first day, making an entrance, breaking the ice, housekeeping, rules, generosity, and more. If you're feeling generous, please share any ideas or suggestions in comments on the episode page. And congratulations on your stamina in getting this far. I'll see you then. Podcast was a 2020 Pod Roger production. This podcast is supported by GrowSites, affordable, beautiful, professional websites tailored to your specific needs. To see how you can grow your projects, visit GrowSites. G R O W S I T dot E-S. music from filmmusic.io. schools out by sasha and wwwsasha endede license ccby creativecommons.org licenses by 4.0